I tell people all the time, like trying to learn English grammar through English is trying to like look at, try to, it's trying to look at your own eyeball without a mirror because you're using something you use instinctively in the English language to try to analyze the English language. Welcome to Classical Etc. Live. Put your hands together for Martin Cothran, Tanya Charlton, Shane Saxon, and Paul Schaefer, the cast of Classical Etc. Bryce, we want to do that from now on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> In the studio when it's just us. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. So we are recording this live with some of our best friends in the world sitting here listening to us talk. And today's episode is going to be about why <laughs> classical education. That's what we're here to talk about. But before we talk about that, um, Martin Paul, we have something we want to show you. Can you see it? Put your glasses on. That button has my face on it. It does. And Shane has one with my Isn't face that on. Isn't pretty it. cool? There are also oh, other buttons. Oh, you get oh. to wear one with me. Oh, God. <laughs> you have to. It's wear what time. you've always wanted. I know. You know I'll, what? I'll since it it's a shirt. no. So <laughs> what these a, are? Since it's a are pen. little buttons that someone decided to put our faces on. They have little quotes from us, apparently. Which we did not know about. We didn't know about this until a little bit ago. No, but I feel like Martin should put this on his pillow, and it would pin on. I hope we have more than one of Tanya. I feel like the you want Ta you want me to. I do want you. Okay. Martin says saving Western civilization one student at a time. So Martin, you finally got your glasses on. That's good. Um, Paul's says, uh, "Let me help you define classical education." Thank you. You've been doing that for a long time. And then uh, Tanya's says, "Learning isn't fun." But that's okay. No, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. This is okay. This is a brilliant <laughs> promotional slogan. Uh, learning is not fun, and that's okay. <laughs> It is brilliant. It's a brilliant speech. But you know what mine says, Martin? It says, what are you reading right now? And I'm actually curious. What are you reading right now? You know, we, he asks us, you ask this question every time, and I, I have to think back because I'm always reading like four books, and a lot I of know, times so I, I'm not, I, I've already said what I'm reading. So this is you stalling and this for is, this is trying me, to come up stalling. with one of I'm them. Reading the, I'm reading The Three Musketeers. Still. Great. Still. It's a big book. And I'm only on the eighth chapter because you've asked me so many times. <laughs> that you, you, but you're still enjoying it. I'm still enjoying it. And I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm re I did. Oh, I, I just, I'm reading. I was reading this weekend out on my uh, back deck in the sun. And uh, John, uh, Jonathan T. Pennington's Jesus the Philosopher, mm. which is a really, really good book. I bought that for you. I think I bought it for me. No, I, I ordered it for you because you couldn't get it done. Tony, what are you reading right now? <laughs> I'm reading Jane Eyre because I told, we had in our last editorial meeting for the classical teacher that we just uploaded. We had, I don't know how, I mean, we don't have anything in there about the Bronte sisters, but somehow we got on the subject of Wuthering Heights versus Jane Eyre mm. and... We had a lot of disagreement about which one is the best, and I had read Wuthering Heights and said I didn't really like it. I like Jane Eyre, but I hadn't read it for probably 15 years, yeah. so I'm rereading yeah. it so that I can make my case. Why uh, did Jane I hear Eyre? some Jane Eyre support from someone? Yes. Okay, so Jane Eyre has some support. Well, I bet Wuthering Heights has support too. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, we can have this discussion, but I need to I need to finish it, and it's a big book too. It and I'm reading. Book. Oh, I just reread Little House in the Big Woods. Oh, because for this project that Lee and I are working on. Yeah. How are you enjoying that? I enjoyed my. I enjoyed it. Yeah. 
Good. Paul, what about you? What are you reading? I um, decided to start getting through The Human Comedy by um, de Balzac. Okay. I just bought The Human Comedy in 25 volumes. What? I have selections from The Human Comedy. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was going to say, we may not see you for a while. Um, the Did nice thing is that they're... they're French or English? In English, okay. in English, I, I yeah, that's that's a whole other problem. I put off Dante for years because I felt like I should do it in Italian, and so finally I had to just cave and start doing Dante in English. So now I don't, mm. I don't um, pin myself against the wall on that one. But I read one called Ficino Cane. I don't know if it's Facino or Ficino, but anyway, it was it was a wonderful story, very reminiscent of actually of the Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, really? About like. A guy who... Um, a revenge tale. No, 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 no. It, it stops before the revenge. It's like the, yeah. the guy who gets a bunch of money like while he's in prison or like finds where a bunch of money is while mm -hmm. he's in prison. And But this one ends with him not getting it. He ends up destitute instead. Mm. Oh, that sounds... Uh, yeah. Spoiler alerts. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> it's only 15 pages. Like, you should go read it. Oh, it's a short story. It's a short... Yes. yes. Oh, maybe so we should do of, it on the yeah. podcast. Uh, well, I just ruined it, but I suppose we could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But point. nobody would have to Uplifting read it ahead of time. by Honoré de Balzac. Uh, I think Balzac, because uh, I, again, just, just bought all 25. I've been, I, I, I walked in this half-price bookstore, and there were these 25 green cloth, mm -hmm. the, 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 the first complete English translation. And um, then I, I brought them home, and I hid them. From my wife. I was going to say, enjoy she yelled at you. By, by that, you mean you put them in your trunk with all the rest of your books? <laughs> they didn't fit. So I had to find another place uh, in the basement. And so like a week later, she walks up and she says, what are all those books down in the basement? And I don't remember what story I made up, but. Yeah. yeah. But you, you did them. finally get them in the house. I, remember I, the time when Nick had you for logic and he brought home to so me. So your son. Was My in son. class with Martin. Yes, but a year later, he wasn't in class with Martin anymore, but he brought home his final exam from Logic. And I said, why do you have, and it had coffee stains all over it. And I said, why do you have this now? Why are you giving this to me now? And he said, oh, Mr. Cothran just found them in the trunk of his car. <laughs> so he graded them well like done, a sir. year later. This is apocryphal, I think. <laughs> so I've been recently starting my reread that I do every year of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I just started the Iliad and I'm in book three and it's great. It's great every year. That's why I read you them read every them year. every year. Every year for the last several years. I have. Wow. Yeah. It's, they're a lot of fun. You I don't read, read the them Aeneid? every year, but I try to read them every few years and I try to do a different translation every time. Oh, do just, you do a different translation? No, same translation, Robert Fitzgerald. And it's the one read by Dan Stevens, the actor on Audible. And it's mm. just so good. So interesting. And I just, the stories. The more you get to know the character, there's so many different character names. There are. And the mythological background that <clears throat> it's something that has a higher increase on return the more you devote to it. So I enjoy it a lot. That's why it's a great that. book, right? That's why it's a great mm -hmm. book. And that's one of the reasons those books are at the heart of a classical education. So the topic that we're <laughs> going to talk about today with what these What I want to know is why Martin, why do you have notes? Did you, did, did you prep him and you didn't prep us? I, Martin's never prepped Those for have nothing to life. do with this podcast. Well, I just had why? a blank page over here. What we're going to talk about is why would these did you think friends you would get bored? who have come here, Tanya, talk. listen to me. <laughs> Sorry. Why would these people come here to, to think about educating their children? They come for support, for ideas. And what we are 
encouraging people to do is to classically educate their homeschool children. Why should people choose to classically educate their children in the homeschool setting? Martin, why make that choice? Well, I mean, I think you first have to to kind of articulate what it is that distinguishes classical education from anything else. I mean, anything, and I've always said this, is that classical education is just real education. It's what education was until about the turn of the 20th century. And um, it's just that, that we, we really delineate between the arts and the sciences, the, the skills, if you will, and the body of knowledge that we, um, that, that we use in a classical curriculum because the explicit, uh, the explicit objective of classical education and of all education up until recently was passing on your civilization. Mm. And in order to do that, you have to have, you have to pass along these certain great works, which express the ideals and values of your civilization. And you need these certain academic skills in order to read those books. So if if that's what you think education is, then that's what you do. Tanya, same question. Why do you, why do you think people should educate their children classically? (laughs) just answered it. Well, yeah, but put, okay. it in, put it in Tanya terms. Okay. So in Tanya terms, it's because it's the best education out there. And it is the education that I don't understand why it went away. Hmm. It was the education of the Puritans and the education of Europe. And what what made us decide that it wasn't sufficient anymore when it was so much, and it was, as Martin said, it was the a, our ability to pass on our civilization, our history, our culture to our students. And the um, I think it's it's really arrogant to think that we don't need that. You know, our students learn how not to make, hopefully, the same mistakes that have been made years ago by studying it, by studying the ancient civilizations. They they understand where their government came from, if they understand at the ancient Roman government. There's just so much, and just like we talk about literature all the time, they understand all the illusions that lead you from ancient lit all the way up to now. Well, I mean, even Shakespeare. How do you read Shakespeare without a classical education? Not well. Paul, same question. What, why, how would you convince someone that they should homeschool their children classically? I, I would like to start with what's on your button. Let me let me help you define classical education. He's going to quote himself. <laughs> of course um, he is. No, actually, I, I, um, I was just... Because these two did a wonderful job um, making defenses for it. But I would just say that from a, from a personal perspective, most of what I received as an education was classical and I'm deeply grateful for it. And so just from, from a personal appeal, that's when I talk to friends or, or anybody to me, it's not just, it's not just a theoretical, this is what used to be done and therefore it's good. But like, this is really what I experienced and it was a very good thing. And so I'm happy to share that story in detail with anybody that asks. And I feel the same way about my children having that education. I think it really 
influence their lives and their ability to think and their ability to understand and to be able to read anything. So if I could try to back us up a couple of steps, do you guys remember when the ideas of classical education started to resonate with you? Do you remember the conversations you were having? I mean, you've talked about that basement episode with Cheryl, but what what were the things that were being said about classical ed that you were like, that's what we're missing. That's what we need. That's what my family and our children need. The one thing that she said that I remember so vividly from that first time I heard her talk about classical education was that we've given it up for vocational training and that vocational training isn't enough and that if we educate students classically, that then they can still, they will still be able to go on and be doctors and lawyers and firemen and whatever, but they will be ethical moral human beings who are good citizens if they've been classically educated, that the classical education is the foundation for anything else in your life that you want, including the way you relate to other people. And I mean, just to give you a whole life that you wouldn't have without it. What about you? Well, sometimes I'll just boil it all down to saying that classical education is teaching kids how to think and what to do. That is, that's, that's Homer's original definition not, uh, in, in, uh, in the Iliad when Phoenix, uh, Achilles' teacher, tells him what his father had commanded him to do. And the problem is that we have, we have inverted that what to think and how to, uh, how to think and what to do, and now it's what to think and how to do. In other words, it's whatever ideology is popular at the moment on the one hand, that's what to think. And vocational education, how to do, just, uh, just a, a, uh, you know, how to, get a, how to get the skills to get a job. And uh, I'm, I'm giving a talk later uh, here on, um, on the whole idea of STEM education. And what people don't realize about that is simply that a classical education prepares you better for even technical positions, really any positions in, in, the, in the work world. Uh, when I was in banking, I, had, I was in a position where I was hiring people, and I realized I never hired anybody because of their technical skills uh, in banking. Uh, I always hired the most articulate candidate, and and that was usually somebody with a, obviously a good education, or something like what we're talking about. Well, what about you? Uh, well, I believe your question was when did those principles like kind of like sink in and become something attractive. Uh, for me, and I feel like this is important for parents to hear, I didn't know there was anything different until about eighth grade. And that's all of a sudden I realized, wait, not everybody studies Latin when they're a child. <laughs> and, you know, th- there's there's a beauty about that. You're growing up as a child and you know, in a homeschool setting and we would go out to do Latin at a co-op and, but all of my friends did it. And I never even thought to ask my, the neighbor uh, kid who I used to play basketball with all the time, went to public school, never even thought to ask him about Latin homework. Um, <laughs> so I just assumed he did it. I assumed he had Latin homework. And so, you know, the, I think sometimes there's this fear that because it is such a different education, my, you know, our children will be different from everybody. And there's a part, I mean, they will be different. They, they will know how to think in ways that their peers don't. But also that's not going to sink in until they're older right? It's going to be who they, it's going to be part of who they are. 
I think it really took my children until college for it to sink in when they were in, in a classroom with students who had not been classically educated. I think that was the first time it ever crossed their minds that they were different. <laughs> and in your original question, when did you first start thinking about that? Uh, uh, none of us really answered that question. Um, I did. In oh, the typical. basement with Cheryl Lowe. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> even, you know, those of us who were, who were there early on in the movement, you know, we were, we were all influenced by that Dorothy Sayers essay where she gives that ta- taxonomy of learning saying, you know, the, there's a, the grammar stage and there's the logic stage and there's the rhetoric stage. She, she, and I, I wrote an article about this later called, you know, classical education is more than a method uh, because she wasn't, I don't think she was really talking about what classical education was. She was just giving this taxonomy of learning, which is very helpful. Mm. But I don't think she would have said this is what classical education is because she had a classical education. You know, she translated Dante um, for, what was it, Penguin Books or something. Mm-hmm. Um, she had that kind of, and I, I bet you if you ask her what that was, she would have said what we say now, which is... That which we haven't it's, done. It's, 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 um, it's, it's the great books and it's um, the great thoughts. So. The great books and liberal Hello. arts. Hello, liberal arts. Latin. Yeah. Well, yeah. The great <laughs> books. If we say the great books and the liberal you mean, arts. You mean the great then, books in their original language? <laughs> well, that would be better. Um, but in the liberal arts, including grammar, I would say when we say the liberal arts, by grammar, we are, are saying it, that essentially by teaching grammar, you have to be teaching Latin. Like that is part and parcel to teaching that liberal arts. But I think we have to say it. I agree. We should say it. I think we just did. Okay. Classical education is learning Latin. I've said it. Okay, thank you. So for anyone who is convinced by these arguments or they, it does resonate with them that education shouldn't just be vocational, what are ways in? How do families start making practical decisions to move their homeschool classically, to move it in a classical direction? What are, what are some ways into this this lifestyle you're inviting them to? Yeah, well, And we were talking about this before the show a little bit. Uh, you know, really... Uh, the first thing to say is that if you're talking about a kindergarten, first grade, second grade student, really you're still just talking about traditional education, which is classical. If you go back and you read Quintilian's uh, Institutes of Oratory, uh, the great Roman um, teacher, he it's about basic skills. You know, uh, learn, He talks about phonics uh, in the, in, back in, in, in the age of Rome. Uh, you're, you're trying to teach kids how to read, you're trying to teach them how to calculate, and you're trying to teach them how to write. It, just, just the basic stuff. And while you're doing that in the early grades, you're reading them, because it's something we have in English, we have a set of great books called classic children's literature, and you're reading that to them also. That's really what all you're doing. They can't really understand, they can't really do Latin proper uh, until about the third grade. And so what we do in our program is we, you know, we bring in Latin starting in about the third grade, a little bit before that, you know, but it's just, it's not really uh, Latin grammar because they can't understand grammar yet. You got to, you got to wait till they develop some kind of abstract thinking before they can really do that. And then you start bringing in Latin and all the liberal arts and you start preparing them to read the great books. And in primary, you can introduce them to beautiful pieces of art, classical music, poetry, and um, in addition to good books and help them to start gaining some kind of appreciation for beauty 
in a in a very gentle manner that doesn't really require we're not testing but we are introducing but then but if you're starting later and you you know and you haven't done anything then there's always a beginning latin course and there's um different varied levels of by age of um ancient history study to do and things i mean we i feel like i feel like now i'm getting ready to be a salesman but but i mean we've done the work for people so just with our curriculum it's done and and we have amazing customer service reps who can help people figure out where to start based on the age of their child and what they've done and i mean even if you get 2 years of latin as a high schooler it's better than mm-hmm. no latin right so in the same thing with ancient history so you read the iliad and the odyssey but you don't get to cicero that's still better than not reading the iliad and the odyssey so it's never too late yeah paul we we Johnny mentioned latin how central it is Let's camp on that for a second. Um, why why is Latin so central? Tease out some of those arguments that we've we've trod many times before. Oh, which which one of the many arguments? <laughs> um, the if we were to focus on grammar, because I made the point in the liberal art of grammar, we feel that Latin's essential. There's that's that's part of the reason why the form series is the entire grammar, right? Yes. To study grammar, you've got to go through. You've got, whole, you've got to go st- step by step through the whole grammar, right? Um, if if we try to, most people today would say, if you're going to teach students grammar, then you should teach them English grammar. And there's a lot of people that say, okay, Latin's great, but you need to teach English grammar first, so Latin grammar makes sense to them. Which, in my opinion, they've got that flip flopped. Right, it is in teaching Latin grammar that these abstract concepts are made clear to the student. They're made concrete to the student because English we deal we're dealing in word order, and it, and so you have to understand its function in the sentence to understand what it's doing. Whereas in Latin, you just look at the ending and you know exactly what it's doing. It's very concrete for the student. I tell people all the time, like trying to learn English grammar through English is trying to like look at, try to, it's trying to look at your own eyeball without a mirror because you're using something you use instinctively in the English language to try to analyze the English language. So even if you're trying to look, maybe it's even trying to examine your own eyeball, right? It's a lot easier to examine somebody else's eyeball and understand what's going on there. And so, you know, you never think of an eye doctor who's going to go examine their own eyes. They're going to look at somebody else's. And so... But wouldn't that be true of any foreign language? Yes, except... Why why Latin? Except that Latin, for one, it's dead. Latin is dead, (laughs) as dead as can be. It killed the Romans, now it's killing me. That's what we used to chant in Latin (laughs) class. It was great. Um, It is dead. Therefore, it is a safe grammar sandbox. There's, There's... it's it's not being developed as we speak. It's it, we're not going to be focused on uh, colors and numbers and how to go to the bathroom as they are in most modern language programs. And the language itself is inflected. 
And so those endings are important, right? Now you do have some modern grammars like German, uh, modern languages like German and Hungarian and that have declensions where your nouns change endings based on their, their function in the sentence. But again, where are you going to start in that program? You're going to start asking, you know, where to find the restroom. And that's infuriating. I've done too many of those uh, programs, learning other languages. So that, that structure is inherent to the language uh, who's it? Was it Livingston? You you would know this. Um, I think it was Livingston that said Unlikely. that that um, or maybe it was Tracy Lee Simmons. I've got my authors completely mixed up. That Latin marches as regularly as the Roman legions. Who was that? Livingston. It was Livingston. Um, and there's there's something absolutely true about that. The Romans were so orderly. You see that in their language. So insofar as teaching grammar, it is the perfect language to do that because it is so orderly. Yeah, I mean, in high school, I had two years of Spanish and I had two years of German. And all of my grammar knowledge when I graduated high school was from those two classes, despite the fact that I'd taken you know, 12 years of English grammar in some form, but I didn't remember anything from that. Um, but I, my Spanish teacher taught in a very grammar-based way, and, and, it, and, and Spanish has an ordered verb system, so at least, I, at least I understood that. German was an inflected language, so you've got the noun cases, which you can see. You can't see them in English. Um, and I, I think, um, I think that the problem with German, of course, was there's all these irregularities. Right. And the nice thing about Latin, and I think this was Livingston's point, is that it's an orderly language. Just it, it, the language, as Livingston points out, uh, reflected the culture of the Roman people. Their, their great value, the Romans' great value was order. And so the, 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 the Latin is an extremely ordin, uh, ordered language. You can count on the rules applying in just about every case until you get to the more advanced stuff. Uh, and, and so I, I think... You know, to me, that's that was the great benefit of that because now that I, when I after teaching Latin for twenty years, I understand grammar now in a way I never did. But I also think because it's so orderly, when you when you teach students Latin very young, it's also forming how they think. Right? It's former forming orderly thought in a way that English does not lend itself towards. Right, and I also think that that the if if you're looking for you know, everyone's looking for a critical thinking skills program, you know, until, you know, maybe before you get to formal logic or something. And the, the, your, your thinking skills program before Latin is, before uh, uh, logic, is Latin and math. Those are, those are the two structured, organized studies. One is mathematical, quantitative. The other is linguistic and qualitative. And, but by Latin, we're talking a grammar-based, a grammar, based a grammar approach, approach yeah. of Latin, yeah. not an immersion, because you're not going to get that order yeah. right. in, a, in an immersion approach. And you haven't said that Latin is the source of those other languages. I mean, you're going back to the source where and, the other languages And all this focus on, on modern languages taught in some immersion kind of, kind of way is, I don't know... I don't know anybody, and I'm sure there are people who actually learned a, a modern foreign language through a modern foreign language immersion program. Um, but I, very few people who've just taken classes in it ever really learn how to speak it. I want to see the success rate for these foreign language programs. Um, whereas, and they don't really get anything from it in the end. Whereas in Latin, you do get something. You, you've got you got an you you understand grammar and you've got an ordered mind. And we're, but we're not against 
the foreign language, the other foreign no, I'm language just saying study. That, yeah. We just think Latin should be right, the basis. Right, but I do think that the best French program that. is France. Sure. I, I agree well, with you on that, having spoken French and Spanish and yeah. Italian, but I would say absolutely. My background in Latin helped me tremendously to pick up those languages. But I mean, didn't your son have a good experience with Japanese? Yes, which... Why? How that happened, I don't know. But he already knew, he already understood language. He did. As language. And that's what he find, that's what he told me. So he was a terrible student at HLS. You didn't teach him, did you? Well, he was I don't know. I left was all the papers good, in my trunk apparently. No, that was Nick. He oh. was not a good Latin student at all. And we were given some D's as favors some years. <laughs> <laughs> and and so when he went to college, he said he was going to take Japanese. And I was like, what? Thinking, well, you're not going to pass probably anything, but at least, at least take a class that is based in Latin. You've had 10 years of Latin. It would be so much easier. And he was like, nope, I'm taking Japanese. So I just was dreading it. And he took it for three years and had the highest great in his class and his teacher kept trying to take get him to take these fluency tests be, and keep studying further and he went he did as much japanese as they could is this and, tyler yes oh my gosh and he said <laughs> I, I did have him in class you did you have him <laughs> i did and he, oh you had him for logic and then he said um he said i think the reason i'm doing so well in japanese is because nobody else in my class had latin and I understand how grammar works, mm. even though he said, I know you've told me and I know that it doesn't have anything to do with Latin, but but I do feel like I understand grammar better than they did. This story strikes me as really interesting because I think a lot of people push back on the idea of Latin when their children start struggling with it and they're having a hard time memorizing it or it seems confusing. It sounds like maybe Tyler in this case did struggle with it, but you still are very committed to it. What are the benefits you saw even with a student who wasn't a straight A student? Well, it helped that I was teaching, and so I was I was seeing the benefits of Latin with my students in addition to my own children. I just really believed in it. I really did. Cheryl Lowe did a number on me, and I just really, and if I ever went to her and said, you know, this is too hard, and he's not really getting anything out of it, I mean, she would just sit me down and tell me why they needed Latin and that it did that even though even a bad Latin student is getting more benefit than a student not taking Latin at all. Just like anybody that has a classical education and doesn't make straight A's is still getting a better education than a student who does not have a classical education. And I've reduced that to the principle that Latin is the best language to fail at. <laughs> well, and I was also surprised when I was reading Climbing Parnassus by Tracy Lee Simmons mm -hmm. that one of his major arguments in there is that learning Latin teaches the student discipline. You can't learn it without a sense of discipline. Well, think about translating a sentence, Yeah, what it takes to do it. And, I mean, to do it right. Right. So even a student who's who's getting D's as favors, right, is still, is having, still learning this, mm -hmm. this discipline, self-discipline. To, to do as best as he can. Right. So Latin, though, is very much on the language side of the curriculum. And I think a lot of people making this choice about whether they should classically educate their kids are thinking classical education seems to resonate with word people, book people. But my, my kid is apt in math or the sciences. What, what is your recommendation for 
the person who's maybe an engineer and they love the maths and sciences, that's how their brain works. That seems to be how their kids work. Is classical education for them? Well, I mean, we've already partly answered that because Latin, it, I mean, I think... I Martin think did a commercial it, for his STEM talk. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that that these people with analytic minds is really what you're talking about. They, they will like Latin better because it makes sense. It's, it's a language study that makes sense. You can apply rules. You can get the right answers. You can, so I. I would also add to that. I, um, you know, my, my whole family, my, my sister, my parents, we've all kind of moved out to the country and we're all sort of engaged in farming in some way, shape or form. And my sister's got four kids and the second one clearly has an affinity for farming more so than books. And we were talking about what kind of education is she going to give him? And she was like, well, he has this other affinity. And I was like, look, it's precisely for that reason that you ought to give him a classical education because you need to stretch a child where they are, where they struggle, right? You, you hear these pro athletes and they say, I get very good. I got very good at the sport because I practiced what I was bad at. Yeah. Pete Rose, one of the great all around baseball players said that. And so, you know, if, if your child has an affinity for something else, I'm not saying don't do it, but make them, make them do the things that are hard too, in order to stretch them and give them that broad all around, um, education. I think it's also important to point out the classical education, if it's done well, and you're going back to the sources and you're talking about the classical cultures as a part of your high school and upper school program, you're going to talk about the ways that they were deeply important to how we understand science and nature mm -hmm. studies and things mm -hmm. like that. It's not all about the literature um, and the language arts piece of it. It's just the thing that we add. That's the thing is you've got, everybody's going to do math and science. So we talk about Latin and ancient history more because those are the things we want you to add. And, and there are, there are um, things that classical education brings to the table in math and science, but your point being that we just, it seems everybody like, else is making the case for math and science. Right. And so we feel we need to make the case for. Well, and also we make a case for doing science in a slightly different way, don't we? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I've always talked about how science, the way we teach science is nature and narrative. Um, Cheryl always talked about how, you know, she went to college, she got a degree and I think it was what chemistry mm -hmm. and then she got another degree in biology. And she said, but I go walk on my farm with my farmer husband and he knew the names of everything and what they did. And I didn't, despite the fact that I'm the one who had the science education. And, and so I think, I think, um, one of the things that we do emphasize in our programs is what nature consists of. It's the wonder of nature. It's not just taking things apart and and, and breaking them down to their smallest pieces. You're studying the whole things that are in nature. You can go take them apart at some later point. And you're also, uh, you know, some of our programs talk about the, the history of science. There's this great narrative story about, about this great human achievement uh, uh, that we've, we've accomplished with, with, you know, in all the scientific disciplines. And, and, and that's a, that, you know, kids learn best, I think, through stories. And if you can give them a story where all that kind of makes sense in some way, I think that's a benefit. So full disclosure, we all work for Memorial Press. You may not know that. Um, and <laughs> Memorial Press, we make books. And so I want to ask you this question here at the end. As people think about classical education, we think that our books are really important for people who are educating at home and homeschooling. 
Why is that? Why, why is it important to have high quality curriculum in your homeschool and how does that help you to do a classical education? Well, why wouldn't you want to have high quality curriculum? <laughs> not I'm everyone not uses really... our books, so I don't know. Ask them. Well, I think everybody's goal would be high quality curriculum. <laughs> well, no, I, you know, you say that, yeah. but, but one of the things I have observed in, in schools in, uh, is that is that a lot of schools think they have a curriculum and they really don't have a curriculum. A curriculum. A, a curriculum because is an, an ordered system of study where you're studying the right, the right things at the right times. And, and you, you, you go to some, some schools and this teacher's doing this thing in, this, in seventh grade, whatever she's doing. And this other teacher, maybe even teaching the same subject, she's doing something different in her classroom. And so nobody ever makes any progress. I mean, you, the fifth grade teacher needs to be assured that the fourth grade teacher prepared them for fifth grade so you can start and you can continue up the ladder and of also, learning. And uh, I also think if you're homeschooling, that. it's a lot cheaper to go and teach trees by having them see the trees in your backyard rather than getting four books and four workbooks. And I, I do think a lot of families are doing that. Mm, like getting too much curriculum? Yeah, well, <laughs> not getting any curriculum at all because it, it can be an obstacle. Uh, or a price but, 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 I mean, our books school. point them back to nature, so that the, you can you can make that experience with nature more instructive if you know what right, what the questions are. And I do think you hit on a really important point that if that your curriculum needs to be cohesive, that it needs to be leading somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so we don't we're not probably the only people that have a curriculum that is cohesive, but the fact that we have the school. And we've, we're actually teaching students in our classrooms from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade means that we are thinking about what they do, what they read in first grade, how it's going to connect and help them as they move on through the grammar school and through middle school to high, and high school to get where we want them to be. So it is cohesive in a way that I've been to many schools where they are, like the teachers are in charge of choosing the curriculum. So nobody knows I'm going to go back to Paul's agrarian theme. You know, nobody's really thinking about where do we see agrarianism throughout mm -hmm. literature from the very beginning. You know, I said I'd reread Little House in the Big Woods. So, I mean, that's second grade. And from there, when we get to Anna Karenina or to Wuthering Heights, mm -hmm. the, the use of nature by those authors then we've started that way back. And, th and that is important. That's really important. That, and it took us a while to get there, you know, to figure all of that out. It's, and we're still, I'd say we're not finished. No. I'd also like to add, in, in, in the same vein of, of asking kids to do what's difficult, as, as parents and teachers, it's easier, to, it's, it's easier to do what's easy. And so I'm thinking about if, if I, if I decided I was going to teach a child on my farm trees, what I would do just instinctively is walk around and say, well, that's a locust tree and that's a walnut tree and let's go look at it. And, but then I wouldn't make, I, I, I wouldn't instinctively be like, well, pick up a leaf. We're going to take it back. You're going to trace it. We're going to, you know, do all of those sorts of activities. Like those sorts of things just wouldn't even cross my mind because I'm just enjoying being out there looking at the trees. Right. Whereas that's what a curriculum is going to, in some senses, force you to do is these other skills of being able to describe what they see. Maybe they've observed it, but now being able to describe it is, for, is forced upon them 
which is going to be a skill that they need to develop. And that's what a curriculum is mm-hmm. going to give you that you might not instinctively think this is important. So let's transition to a little bit of question and answer. So we have a roving mic. So if anyone here wants to ask a question, we would love for you to do so. So if you would like to ask a question, just raise your hand. In the meantime, I'm going to start with a question that was submitted to us ahead of time by Andrew Pudua. I don't know if Andrew's here or not, but Andrew wanted to ask us how we thought AI and chat GPT is going to affect classical education. It's already affecting me in the, in the, in Memorial Academy. Speak on that. I've already got students that are submitting the online school. Yeah. In our online school. And uh, I already have students submitting synopses, essays that are generated by chat GPT. And they think that they're going to fly under the radar. Little do they know that there's already ways to check whether that was. Are there ways to mm-hmm, check? Mm-hmm. Zero <gasps> GPT. Really? You put it in zero <laughs> GPT and it uses the AI to, to tell on itself. Really? Whether it was generated by AI or oh, not. Oh, those poor students. Yeah. So that's been some conversations that haven't <laughs> uh. been pleasant. Um, so, you know, the. There is a larger conversation going on in universities right now of, okay, does this mean we need to go back to, and this I'm really excited about this, the old form of oral exams, mm. right? You had oral exams, didn't I you? I did have oral exams, and I really want to do it at Highlands next year with the philosophy students. Um, mm. You know, because it actually does bring a whole other sort of air of formality and and you know, fear, fear that's very good for a student. And, uh, you know, and, and Mitchell, the principal of Memorial Academy has been advocating for what he calls trials, Mm. which is this same sort of idea. And we might be forced to go that way because anything written that gets turned in can be very easily faked. Yes, but they've got to learn to write. Well, they do. (laughs) We're doing this at Memorial College with our master of arts and great books. You think your students are... Well, no, you have to, you know, do, like the accrediting agencies want to see that, that you are ver- verifying that this is students' actual work and it's because of this mm-hmm. all this AI stuff. And so oral exams is a part of that. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to have to be mm-hmm. instituting some of those. Is there any role for a classical educator to think about how we can help students to... I mean, these are... A lot of people are, are going to argue that these are productivity tools. What is well, the role? Okay, it's it's going to the, cut their ability to think, right? The point the, is not what you can do with your brain out here. It's what you can do with your brain in yes, here. Yes, I completely agree. Oh my gosh, that makes me so mad. We're, I was just asking the question. Yes, well, wow. now Paul's mad at you. <laughs> He's not going to let you wear his face on your lapel. Well, given that if you ask a question, Paul will be mad at you. Does anyone <laughs> want to ask a question of, of anything Something that will make said? Paul mad. Because we have others that came I, in before, ahead of time. So... Yeah, there's a question. Oh, oh, Kelly. Where's our roving mic? Here it comes. So, obviously, you guys uh, produce one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, um, okay. As a mom of two littles and I work, I rarely have time to sit down. It's usually at the end of the night to read books. Um, and I can, though, listen to podcasts all the time. So I was wondering what were your favorite podcasts to listen to? Oh, Paul, what are you? What are your favorite podcasts? Um, I listen to a hunting podcast. 
This isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah, I don't, I don't listen to many <laughs> intellectual podcasts because that's my way of kind of disconnecting. So I listen to a podcast called uh, The History of the English Language by Kevin Stroud. If anybody, anyone in here who's, has done listened to this, he went all the way back to theories of the Ural Mountains and Proto-Indo-European and episode by episode traced the etymology of, of English through Latin, through linear A, linear B, all the way up. And it is fascinating. It's a two-time speed podcast. You know, it's not a one-time speed, but it is really interesting. I don't even know what that means. It's okay. So um, you have no podcast to recommend? I have no podcast <laughs> to recommend. Um, I'm going to mention two. One is Victor Davis Hanson. Uh, now he's a prominent conservative voice, but he's a classicist. And he's a military, a classical military historian. He, he, um, uh, he's got uh, uh, the introduction to one of the, 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 the big um, translations of Thucydides' Peloponnesian War. And so he, the interesting, it's interesting to hear somebody talking about modern politics from the perspective of this knowledge of classical history. So, so I think that's really interesting. But the other one is it's, a, it's on the BBC uh, Melvin Bragg is the host. It's called In These Times. And he'll it, the subjects range from, from certain great authors to great events in history. And he'll have like three or four Oxford professors on there, uh, Oxford professors who can still talk normal language to people. And so uh, they have these great conversations. It's very informative and enjoyable. So I, and, and that's not what I hear people talking about In These Times. I'd like to be a little more helpful than a hunting podcast. Um, Thank you, Paul. One would be... Uh, if you do good on this, I'm going to wear your uh, lapel bag. Thank you. Uh, not a podcast, but the great courses, because they're very episodic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you can you can listen to them sort of like a podcast, and those are, those are phenomenal and fascinating, and you learn a lot. Um, and then... Um, I did the Old Testament one. It's very good. Yeah, I did one on the history of music, mm. which was really interesting to me. And, and also philosophy is, there's a whole slew of them. Uh, my other, my other suggestion was to listen to books instead of podcasts, but I feel like that undermines our own podcast. Uh, I agree with the great, the great courses recommendation. I'm just finishing for the fourth or fifth time, Lewis Marcos's from Plato to postmodernism, which is a history of literary criticism. I mean, you doesn't sound like that'd be real exciting, but he's, he's such a great teacher. He's coming to our conference this yes. summer. Got that plug too. Yes. Thank you, Martin. Oh yes. Come to the conference. <laughs> oh yeah. So we've had great questions. We've had, what are you reading and what are you listening to? I'm just going to finish it out here. Uh, in terms of what are you watching? What is your, what is your favorite movie you'd recommend? Oh, movie. Favorite movie. I honestly think the best movie ever made is the fellowship of the ring. Oh, I disagree. Best movie ever made. <laughs> okay, I guess cinemagraphically, is that a word? Mm -hmm. It's good. Oh, yes, it's very good. Mm -hmm. It's good. She didn't say great. Oh, interesting. Uh, I, I, it's hard to pick, pick a good one. I, I, people are forgetting about classic movies. And I think that this is hugely important because it, it tells us something about the, the, the generation, two, three generations ago, which is just a memory hole, I think, for a lot, of, a lot of people. And, of course, I think one of the greatest ones there is Casablanca. I saw that again the other night. I'm, I, 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 I find film noir really fascinating. Um, uh, but there's, there's a lot of really great 
classic movies, classic westerns, uh, film noir, um, and and there's just there that I think that Hollywood really, really, it, it was a great achievement, artistic achievement. Uh, in in the classic film era, and I, I think we we don't talk about that much, and I think it's important. I don't know. I can't remember many movies I watched. Which you're, if you know, if you follow me at all, and know that I read British murder mysteries all the time, I am like a huge fan of BritBox. So I spend my time watching Vera and Shetland and those. Murder mysteries where not a lot happens, but I, that's, I, I mean, I like Pride and Prejudice as a movie. I just can't th- even think of any movies that I've seen. We have a, we have a history teacher or former history teacher at Allen's Latin School named mm-hmm. Mr. Ken Dennis, and he came onto this podcast a long time ago, and he gave me a list of 10 movies about, cla- about education to, to lit- watch. Really? Two and a half years ago or so. Have, have you watched, read it? Have you watched any of them? Now I've, everyone wants to. Well, Goodbye, Mr. Chips is on there. The remake of Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Blackboard Jungle. I mean, these go, these are older movies. And I'm five in. And Mr. Dennis, he's pretty old. And every time he comes to the office, he says to me, Have you watched those movies? You're not going to watch these by the time I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel really sad, but I haven't been able to watch the rest. But are they good? I mean, they're, yeah. Mr. Goodbye, Mr. Chips is really good. Well, I like the book. I didn't even know there was a movie. Mm -hmm. I, um, my wife and I have been enjoying all creatures, great and small. Oh, I love that show. BBC. And, um, but sort of on, on the topic of classical education, um, the, the, the series, um, that was on CBS uh, over for like a decade, Madam Secretary was phenomenal about raising ethical questions. And so uh, my wife and I would often find ourselves watching that and then turning and saying, we need to talk this one out. So if, if you like to watch things for that reason, it's, it's a good show to watch. And that's what, what a lot of good movies do. They raise these ethical questions. It's a story. And most stories really involve some kind of ethical question. I think uh, Foil's War is another one, another BBC I production. I loved Foil's and, War. Because and, he's always <laughs> dealing with the fact he's dealing with I'm the police or the movies, military. I'm just watching He's dealing with the police or the military, and they're thinking in these total utilitarian terms. And he's thinking about what's happening right here on the ground to people. And he's constantly trying to resist this this, um, consequentialism that these officials are trying to foist on him because he's got a crime to solve that that affects the people in his town. And and it's a very interesting approach. I have a movie. (laughs) I just thought, I do have a movie. I loved Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis. I just thought, like, that was the only movie I've ever come out of where I couldn't talk. Like, I couldn't, like, I was just, I was in brain overload. It does sound like a momentous occasion. (laughs) (laughs) It was so momentous. Like, I just had no words. So I I did have a movie that touched me. We're we're (laughs) proud of you. (laughs) I feel relieved now. (laughs) Okay, yeah. We can't see. It's okay. Oh. You mentioned Dorothy Sayers' article about, or paper, I guess, about um, the liberating arts. How would you say that that has impacted 
um, either for the positive or the negative, um, just people's understanding of what classical education is. Do you, do you find that you agree or disagree with what she wrote? Can I just hang on just a minute? We are, I'm just going to say there is going to be at 630 some loud music coming through here that they've warned us about. And so if that happens, don't panic. They said we could go on, but that, but we have to at 630 let them do their sound check for some concert coming up. So I just wanted, in case the loud music starts, <laughs> that means we're done. Thank you very so, much. So, But we can keep on, they said. It's just that we it's, just have there's going to gonna be loud music we'll have to in talk the background. Louder. We'll shut up. And maybe they'll be late. So go for it. Okay, I've forgotten the question now. Dorothy uh, Sayers, okay, good think, or bad? You know, uh, Aristotle talks about four causes for things. And I think, I think Dorothy Sayers provided what Aristotle would have called the efficient cause of the classical education movement. That was, in fact, the thing without which it would not have happened. Because that article that she wrote... Uh, had been republished like every five years by National Review magazine. They kept publishing that article. And then Douglas Wilson, a, a Presbyterian pastor, took that, put it in a, in a book, and then talked about it in the book. And if it hadn't been for that book, for Douglas Wilson writing that book, we would not be here. I think you have to acknowledge that. Um, but, but I also think that that the, the movement has, has grown beyond that. I mean, th we all appreciate that, that taxonomy of learning because it is helpful. But we've, we've uh, I think a lot of the people who started schools on the basis just of that, that taxonomy have gone back and, and done a little historical analysis of what classical education actually was. So all the schools that are found in the, the association, the uh, Association of Classical Christian Schools, they have updated their... Uh, their whole philosophy of education because they now realize that it's much bigger than they thought it was. So does, it that, has, does that answer it, your question? I do think it's caused some confusion. Yeah. Well, and, but you wrote an article about that yeah. that's on our website, but I don't know. It's really the a question of it. how are we defining that the two words, liberal arts specifically, and she was using it as an analogy for development, but historical analysis has maybe revealed that these were areas of study to develop skills within people help them to become free persons of virtue, right? Well, yeah. and, and what's interesting is you can go look at other sort of educational movements or educational niche areas where somebody does something really, really well. Um, the one that comes to mind is Cardin. I forget her first name, but there's, there's a group of people that say we educate according to Miss Cardin's philosophy of education. And, Wilson could have done that. He could have said, we're going to have a Sayers education and it wouldn't have driven us back to the historical tradition. But because it, we, the movement chose the term classical, it kept driving us back to, well, there's a tradition here. Mm -hmm. And so the, it's a, it's an interesting start that we, it, it could have been pigeonholed into a very sort of where it never would have grown beyond those stages mm -hmm. But it, it definitely has grown beyond the stage. I remember looking just at school website after school website about a decade ago that all claimed to be classical schools, and the vast majority of them were only focused on that paradigm of development of learn the, the it child's didn't development. It have anything to do with their content that Nothing they were teaching. about their content, and mm -hmm. that has dramatically shifted over the past decade. And, 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 and Wilson would agree with that today. He's, he's expressed that. Yeah. All right. Well, Thank you all so much for coming tonight. 
We've enjoyed it, and we hope that we'll see you at our booth sometime this weekend. Where you can you pick all, up a yeah, pen. You can grab a pen how many of these do we have? I don't know how many they bought, but you can just go ask them if you want a pen of one of our faces. <laughs> I'm finding it a little creepy. Get the Martin Cawthorn one, and then we're going to afterwards see how many people took. And Have you looked at took. that picture on for you? It's not oh, very yeah. good. I'm sorry. Never mind. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for being here, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.